Okay, so welcome very much to the first of this year's uh, Cancer Center Grand Rounds. We're in this beautiful new venue, um, and uh, it seems actually quite large. Um, and uh, we haven't had this sort of what, angle to, to present that anywhere, um, really, at, uh, at the medical school or at DH before. So this will be a real treat for those who um, are presenting. Um, today, um, we're delighted and honored to have uh, Jim Sargent, one of our own, um, give the inaugural um, seminar of the series. Jim is the Scott and Lisa Stewart professor of pediatric oncology, and uh, what a wonderful thing at our institution that the person who holds that uh, chair is someone, uh, not a person one would think of as being actually actively engaged in taking care of children with cancer, but rather focusing on the prevention of childhood cancer, a particularly important strategy, I think, for diseases that are essentially very rare, and the ability to develop new therapies rapidly for them is extremely complicated and um, uh, really uh, challenging. So we're delighted to have Jim. Jim's had a particular interest in childhood risk factors um, for a long time, the role of media uh, in um, really impacting on children utilizing uh, the risk factors as a marketing strategy for uh, what we would term unhealthy behaviors. And so um, this is an area that Jim has been in sort of a pioneering wave of and is catching on more and more around the country. And that's an exciting piece that uh, probably only in the last 10 years has this sort of research really impacted at all on public policy or uh, the um, way in which we um, try to address uh, challenges in particular in pediatric oncology, but also in oncology in general. So um, we're particularly interested um, and enthusiastic to have Jim. Um, he's going to be talking about um, cigarettes and e-cigarettes today, but as you know, his interests have broadened to obesity, food, and there are quite a number of uh, new investigators here who um, are interacting um, with Jim, and I hope in his book, emerging role as sort of the senior leader of the Coop Institute, we'll be able to transform some of the exciting research that so many of you are doing in this general area into policy and into strategies that really will impact on the public. So, Jim, thanks so much, and uh, thanks for being here today. Is it advanced? Yep. Okay. And um, can everybody hear me? Yeah. Um, so, I just, you know, I sat down in one of those seats. Uh, I know it's a little bit tight in there. I hope a fire doesn't break out because the people on the side aren't going to make it out. Um, anyway, thanks for showing up. Um, I, uh, I usually come here and like talk to you about kids, but um, I'm not going to talk to you about kids at all. I'm not going to say anything about children or adolescents today. I'm just going to talk about adults with cancer. Um, so 
Um, that'll be a treat for the oncologists who come here and have to listen to me talk about kids all the time. Um, uh, there's a disclosure statement here that I have to make, and uh, unfortunately, I don't have any financial interest. I don't get any money from any kind of patents or anything like that. Um, I wish I did, but I don't. And I'm not going to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device. Uh, hmm. Well, I guess maybe I... No, I don't know if I am or not. I don't know if an e-cigarette's a device. It's a tobacco product. So, um, and I'm not receiving any direct payments from any commercial entity with respect to this activity. Okay. So I'm just going to start with the highlights of the 2014 Surgeon General's Report on Smoking and Health. Um, a lot of you know this, but it's worth kind of emphasizing 20 million people have died since 1964 from smoking-related illnesses. 5.6 million, one in 13 children alive today, uh, will die prematurely from smoking as current smoking rates persist. Smokers today have a greater risk of developing lung cancer than they did in 64. And that's um, 1964, and that's in part because of the product, how the product's been uh, um, redesigned over time. Um, the report calls for an end to the use of cigarettes, and um, what I'm going to talk a little bit about today is how we accomplish that in game in the context of um, e-cigarettes. Um, anybody who's ever tried to help somebody quit smoking, a patient, especially a heavily addicted smoker, knows that it, smokers are really hard to treat. Um, and that's in part because nicotine is addictive, but I think we focused um, too much on nicotine as a drug, and we've underemphasized other, other aspects of the behavior that are heavily ingrained and ritualized part of smoking that um, also contributes to the addiction. And uh, I think e-cigarettes fit into that picture. And the, the guy that really described it best, I think, was the chief scientist at Philip Morris. And he got this way before anybody in our field got this. This is written back in the early 70s. And what he said was, consider the smoker. Smoking a cigarette's a lever press. You get a reward. You press a lever, you get a reward. The effect of smoking act on the person is the reward. The uh, effect reinforces the act. The smoker comes to push the lever 40 to 60 times a day. And our task is to understand the reinforcing mechanism, or the process whereby the habit is established and maintained, such as our model. It seems conceptually simple on the surface, but it's complicated. It really is. Um, Alan Budney will tell you that. Um, so think about the behavior. It's not just a lever press. It act, the act has many dimensions. Okay, There are these motor aspects where you're lighting the cigarette, you're pulling it out of the pack, you're drawing the smoke into your mouth, you're inhaling it into your lungs. Think about the complex composition of the smoke and you know other elements of this operational behavior sovereign behavior, and the effects of, uh, of, of the smoke on the person. There's taste and there's olfactory sensations uh, that the smoke uh, causes you to have. The smoke's drawn into the lungs. Psychosocial symbolism is imparted to the person, especially if they're an adolescent. And a large number of chemical compounds pass rapidly in the bloodstream. In 1973 or 1970, they'd identified component X that has to be maximized in smoking. And Philip Morris maximized the delivery of nicotine by putting ammonia in the, in the tobacco. And that was the key ingredient that caused Philip Morris to take half the market. 
um, over the next 10, 15, 20 years. So enter the e-cigarette, or some people call them electronic nicotine delivery devices. They were introduced in 2007. It was a $2 billion market in 2013. It's more than that. Um, now it's uh, three, three and a half billion. And um, for people that don't know how these work, most people have seen talks on this, so I'm not gonna belabor it too much, but basically it's a battery. It's usually rechargeable. You've got a processor here that processes how much, how hard the person's puffing on the cigarette and increases the voltage <coughs> to this little uh, filament here. The filament is uh, bathed in a propylene glycol nicotine solution. And it doesn't vaporize it, it turns it into an aerosol, a really fine aerosol that you can breathe deeply into your lungs. That's pretty much how it works. It uh, sounds simple, um, but uh, there's, there's some complexities. Um, why could it be better for health? Well, when, when you think about what's in, um, in cigarette smoke, there's nicotine, and that's true for the e-cigarette as well, but it's the tar component that kills people. And in the tar components, particulate matter, phenols, tobacco-specific nitrosamines, we'll talk about those later, formaldehyde, benzene, heavy metals, carbon monoxide, that's a, that's a big problem with cigarettes, and uh, hydrogen cyanide. Whereas with, um, with the e-cigarette, it's, it's, uh, it's a fairly simple composition. You've got nicotine, uh, the propellant or the vapor component, which is propylene glycol and glycerol, and um, flavor components. Now there are contaminants, and we'll talk about that um, when it comes to the um, talking about the regulation of e-cigarettes. Why might e-cigarettes be a better substitute than the patch or the gum or the things that we usually um, uh, prescribe for patients? Well, um, they deliver nicotine to the lungs, and they deliver it. The e-cigarette delivers it deep into the lungs, so you get the same hit kind of immediate hit, the nicotine goes into the arterial circulation right straight to the brain, so within a few seconds of breathing, you actually get the sensation that you're looking for as a smoker. The nicotine hits your brain. But it also mimics the feel of a conventional cigarette. So people are satisfying many of those behavioral sensory cues um, that they, that they uh, crave for when they smoke. Uh, there's a couple of types of e-cigarettes. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on that. Um, but they're, 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 they're based on how you, how you refill them, whether you just attach something that's disposable or whether they're, they're rechargeable, and uh, a, a little bit about the technology. But the two um, basic types are the Sigalikes, and these are e-cigarettes where the, uh, like I showed you the schematic for, where the battery is the white part and the nicotine uh, propylene glycol solution is contained in the filter tip, which unscrews and you put a new one on when you run out of... Uh, uh, a nicotine. And then there are these devices called tank devices, uh, which have bigger batteries, deliver more voltage to the filament, and have these tanks that uh, people will buy liquid for and refill. So when you see somebody walking around with something like this, that's a tank model that they're, uh, that they're refilling. And the, the people that are really into e-cigarettes will typically be using the tank types because they can, they can deliver it better. So I'm going to talk a little bit of, uh, uh, about studies on e-cigarettes. Um, when, I, when I first made this, maybe six months ago, there were about 100 published studies. I, the, the number of studies are going up exponentially, so now there's probably 200 published studies. Um, and uh, 
so there's studies on that that analyze the uh, liquid in the e-cigarettes from a chemical standpoint. There's toxicological studies, behavioral and epidemiological studies. Um, I'm going to start with the toxicological studies, um, and those are ones that um, look at uh, what comes out of a cigarette, with a, the composition of what comes out of a cigarette, the smoke, and compares that to the composition of what comes out of an e-cigarette. And those studies are all very consistent, that, that if you look at these things that we don't want people to be breathing, like formaldehyde and acetaldehyde, um, those things are present in cigarette smoke uh, at a ratio of 10 to 500 times higher in the cigarette smoke compared to the e-cigarette smoke. So, it, so it's clear that the, the stuff that comes out of the e-cigarette probably reduces the toxicants that people are breathing <coughs> by about 95%. And remember that, that number, because we're going to come back to it in a second. Um, so those are the ratios right there. And then uh, the side stream smoke is another issue with, with cigarettes. That's why we have indoor smoking rules, so other people that don't smoke aren't um, uh, exposed to the side stream smoke. And if you look at side stream smoke studies, what comes uh, uh, off the side of the smoke that, that, uh, that people are breathing, you find that um, e-cigarette liquids deliver much less uh, side stream uh, chemicals uh, than um, conventional cigarettes. So um, from both the standpoint of side stream smoke and what gets delivered to the lungs in the smoker, you're delivering uh, much lower levels of uh, toxic substances. So, um, uh, Public Health England has, uh, as of August 2015, just updated their uh, evidence uh, report uh, for people on uh, e-cigarettes. And uh, they stated first that uh, the, the three key messages that I take from this report, smokers who tried other methods of quitting without success could be encouraged to try e-cigarettes to stop smoking. Um, uh, and they say that uh, you should encourage smokers who cannot or do not want to stop smoking to switch to e-cigarettes because that could help reduce smoking-related disease. Uh, and that there's been an overall shift towards the inaccurate perception that e-cigarettes are as harmful as cigarettes. They wanted to uh, uh, change that perception by stating that e-cigarettes, uh, in their estimate, were about 95% safer than smoking. Now, what's that? evidence based on? Is it based on clinical trials where they actually put people, you know, randomized people to e-cigarettes and looked at clinical outcomes? No. If you look at the underpinning of their evidence base, it's based on those toxicological studies that show that e-cigarettes put out 95 percent uh, lower levels of the toxicants, okay? So from my point of view, it's pretty flimsy evidence, but they're hanging their hat on it in England and really trying to push people over onto e-cigarettes. Um, so that's their public health approach now, uh, beginning in uh, August of uh, this year. So let's talk a little bit about nicotine delivery. Um, that's another important part. Remember I said uh, these things deliver uh, nicotine deep into the lung, and it gets absorbed there. Um, but it really depends on the device. So. When you look at um, how um, a cigarette delivers nicotine, within four minutes of lighting up a, cig uh, a cigarette, people have uh, quite high levels of nicotine in their blood. That's why when somebody walks out of a bar to smoke a cigarette, they only have to be outside for two or three minutes, and they can come back into the bar because they've, they've really replenished their uh, blood nicotine levels in a short period of time. You look at people using e-cigarettes, 
they're standing out there for a longer period of time. Because it takes longer, especially if you're using a first generation device, to uh, replenish those levels. Um, so here you could see that after sucking on one of those first generation devices that were released in 2007 for a half hour, you've only got half the level of nicotine. But the devices are getting better. And in fact, there's a, a new device that's out that's called the Joule device. We have one of those devices. This is what they look like. Uh, you can see it in the picture here. And um, they, uh, this is not peer reviewed, this is from the company, but they're stating that this device delivers nicotine as quickly and as efficiently as the cigarette. So, um, so you can see that things are changing really rapidly in terms of the technology and the nicotine delivery on these devices. Then it, um, the thing that leads smokers a lot of times to want to smoke is they crave. They, they kind of have this hunger for a cigarette. If you take a smoker that hasn't smoked for a while, they're craving, and you give them a cigarette, uh, that blue line, it drops their craving level by quite a lot. Um, you know, from zero to minus five. If you give them an e-cigarette, whether it's charged with nicotine or not, it's going to have an immediate impact on their craving. And that's that, remember, that's that behavioral. You know, you give them the behavior, you let them do the behavior, it's going to reduce their level of craving. The red line is if you charge it with nicotine, that little uh, tan line is if you don't charge it with anything at all, or if you don't put nicotine in the, <coughs> in the vehicle. So if you put nicotine in, the reduction in craving lasts a little bit longer. Okay, so let's talk about the public health end game. Uh, an e-cigarette proponent named Clyde Bates is the person that kind of put this, this uh, together. So I'm going to give him credit for it. Um, what he says is, Let's think about the population of smokers. It's about 1.5 billion smokers worldwide now. If we have constant prevalence of smoking, worldwide prevalence of smoking is about 28%. It's lower in this country than it is in other countries, uh, but it's about 28%. With population growth, uh, that's going to grow to uh, a little over 2 billion smokers. Okay? So um, tobacco control tries to reduce the prevalence of smoking. Okay? And, uh, you know, Here's one estimate of what we might be able to do with good tobacco control by 2050 to decrease the global smoking prevalence to 15%. So you got this part of um, the harm that's contested by tobacco control. The rest of it is harm. You know, these people are going to be smoking and they're going to be harmed by smoking. So that's a part, according to Mr. Bates, that's contested by nicotine products. And what he argues is that if you had low-risk nicotine products, that you could reduce the harm of smoking by cutting into that <coughs> harm pie even more with low-risk products. So assuming these devices are low-risk, and assuming people can completely switch over to these devices, you could actually improve, uh, reduce the equivalent of global smoking prevalence down to 5% by pushing these devices. Now, there's two problems with that argument. First problem is dual use, okay? So a lot of people that are using these devices are using these devices when they're uncomfortable, when they can't smoke, uh, you know, they, they're, 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 there's some place they are that they can't smoke in an airplane. They go in the bathroom, they puff on their e-cigarette. Um, so they use it when they're uncomfortable, and they continue to smoke. And from the heart disease uh, standpoint, if you continue to smoke, even if it's five or six cigarettes a day, you're not really changing 
You cut your smoking down, you decrease your risk for cancer, um, but you don't really decrease your risk for heart disease. So dual use is a problem, and there's two areas of dual use that are important. One is these people that go from smoking to e-cigarettes but continue to smoke, and the other is people that, that um, move from having quit <coughs> to e-cigarettes and then back to smoking, because that's another process that's going on. And then the other, the other problem with this argument is that it, it's becoming um, fairly clear that e-cigarettes are recruiting adolescents that may not otherwise have started to smoke, okay? So it's recruiting these kind of medium-risk adolescents, and, and, and there's, there's, there's a certain risk that once they start e-cigarettes and become interested and in, in used to nicotine, that they'll, that they'll um, continue on um, to smoking. Uh, regular cigarettes. So those are the problems with, uh, that's kind of a, the public health paradigm is, yeah, these, these low-risk nicotine products could help, but uh, what's gonna, uh, what could undermine that is dual use among adults and recruitment of medium-risk adolescents. So what about adult use of these cigarettes? What do we know? Not much. There haven't been very many prospective studies, but they all pretty much show, uh, but, uh, well, clearly the Cigarette companies are um, pitching their product not only to young adults and adolescents, but to older adults that are upset that they can't smoke any place that they want, okay? Um, so this longitudinal study was done by Lois Beener. Um, she looked at uh, about 700 adult smokers surveyed in 2011-2014. E-cigarette trial was 20% in 2011 and 70% in 2014. That's what we're seeing. We're seeing smokers, really a lot of smokers trying e-cigarettes now, the adult smokers. Um, and uh, and uh, by the time the second survey rolled around, 13% um, had quit. So she could look at whether e-cigarette use was related to quitting. And, and what she found was really interesting. What she found was that if you looked at quitting smoking, that's this column here, that intensive, that it, that it, it, it mattered how much they were using the e-cigarettes. The people that were using them intensively were more likely to have quit smoking. The odds ratio was six. It's a pretty good odds ratio, right? The people that were dual using intermittently were less likely to quit smoking. Then if you look at, um, then, she, then she asked them um, at follow-up whether they thought they were going to quit in a year, all right? And um, the people that were intermittent users were much less likely, 6.04, right here, I was wrong, right here, um, much less likely to uh, say they were going to quit. So there's this double-edged sword, right? People that are using them intensively to quit seem to be helped, but most of the people are using them intermittently. And those people seem to be less likely to think that they're going to try to quit in a year. All right, so I came here really to talk about e-cigarettes and cancer patients, and that's what I'm going to talk about for the rest, of the, the rest of the time. I think we as a cancer center and other cancer centers should care about this issue, and I'm going to show you why. <coughs> so the, the, the first thing to point out is that there hasn't been a whole lot of progress in certain cancers since the inception of the war on cancer, all right? You look at five-year survival for people with lung cancer. In uh, 1973, it was about 2%. And here in, uh, in the 2000s, it's gone up, but it hasn't gone up very much. It's gone up to about 6%. And this is all-cause uh, all survival for extensive small cell cancer. But even if you look at... Um, People with limited stage small cell cancer, their, their survival has shifted up a little bit, but we haven't made a lot of progress. 
this cancer. And that's a problem. I mean, there are really great you know, success stories in cancer, but there are other stubborn cancers that we really haven't been able to do a lot about. The great uh, story with cancer is that there's been decreased incidence of lung cancer. Okay, So in about 1982, the rising incidence of lung cancer in the population leveled off. And in about 1990, it started to decline. Does anybody know what's that? I mean, that's a success story. Does anybody know why that happened? Were we screening better for it? Any guesses? Regulations. Huh? Regulations. Regulation of what? <laughs> Workplaces. Advertising. Workplaces and uh, restaurants. What, what, what did it do? It decreased smoking in the population, right? That's, that's the major success story, right? Look at this. Look at the, the smoking epidemic followed the, look at the black curve there. The smoking epidemic, we became really aware of the smoking epidemic in the 40s and 50s. It's about 30 years after people started smoking. Smoking leveled off in the 50s. 30 years later, 1980, we saw that. Right? And then it started to decline after the Surgeon General's report in 1964, smoking did. And it was in 1990, about 30 years later, that we started to see lung cancer in the population drop. So that's the success story. Population levels of smoking have dropped, and lung cancer incidence has dropped so along with it. Going up. Huh? Snuff is going up. <clears throat> What's not going up? Snuff is going up. Snuff. Yes, snuff. Chew. Yeah, well, that's the, uh, converting to chew is is a is a that's a low harm product, right? So it's, that's how Sweden did it. Um, the, the the only other thing to show you about incidence is incidence is still climbing and just starting to level off in women. It started to level off in in men in 1980, and that's that's why the population it changed for the population. But um, smoking incidence continued to go up for women until 1970. So we're only just starting to see a leveling off of lung cancer incidence increase among women. So what about smoking status and cancer outcomes? Like whether you smoke with a smoking-related cancer or not, does it matter? Um, well, there's a lot of reasons to think that it might matter or it should matter because um, if you continue to smoke, you continue to take up carcinogens. You continue to make these DNA adducts and you continue to have mutations. But you also um, continue to take up other aspects of the uh, smoke that promote tumor growth, okay? So, so there's at least a theoretical reason to believe that not only might you um, have uh, decreased survival, but you might have an increased incidence of uh, second primaries if you continue to smoke. <laughs> Is that true? Um, we're starting to get some really good evidence about that. Um, Roswell Park started um, assessing smoking in all their patients uh, back in the 1980s um, when they first came in. So they were able to follow people forward and look at survival as a function of whether they were former smokers or smokers at baseline. And if you look at these survival curves for lung cancer, what they look like to me, this is all-cause survival, and this is disease-specific survival. Now, there's not many things that affect lung cancer very much, but I look at this difference in these curves, and that looks about like the difference that I'm seeing with these new immune-modulating drugs. 
Okay, everybody's very excited about those immune modulating drugs. Everybody wants to get on them. Everybody wants to get on that bandwagon. But I don't see a lot of people really pushing people to quit smoking, right? And, and look at the difference that it could make, possibly, for a lung cancer patient. <clears throat> for head and neck cancer, you can look that, um, that head and neck cancers survive. They, they, this is a smoking-related disease, but they survive longer, okay? So there's a chance not only for you to, uh, if you're a smoker, die of head and neck cancer, but also die of other things that smoking causes, like coronary artery disease. So the survival curves for head and neck cancer and prostate cancer are even more divergent between the smokers and the non-smokers because of the other diseases that kill people with those cancers uh, besides cancer. So there's a, a lot of reason to believe that um, that smoking status affects cancer survival pretty dramatically if you look at these survival curves. Um, what about secondary cancers? Well, to study secondary cancers, you need a lot of people. And so this uh, study put together a lot of large prospective studies and looked at second cancer incidence as a function of smoking. Um, so first of all, they found that a lot of people with lung, bladder, kidney, head and neck, and head and neck cancers were continuing to smoke once the cancer was diagnosed. And if you look at the hazard of getting a second primary as a function of smoking status, so there's former smokers here, less than 20 cigarettes, more than cigarette, uh, 20 cigarettes, current smokers, less than 20 cigarettes, more than 20 cigarettes. You see this dose-dependent um, worsening of survival as smoking um, increases. And it's true across the board for all of these cancers. Now, um, there are other ways that patients that don't smoke when they're diagnosed differ besides smoking status. They're more healthy in general. So I'm not saying all these differences are due to smoking. But theoretically, there's a good reason to believe that at least some of this difference is a result of continued exposure to smoke over time in these patients. Um, and, I, and I think it's, I've said, it, I've said it again, I think if we had a drug that conferred the, for, conferred the same impact on survival, we'd be very enthusiastic about getting on the bandwagon for that drug. So we ought to be enthusiastic about getting on the bandwagon for doing something about cancer patients that smoke. So what do we offer these patients? Well, we offer them smoking cessation. And, um, and we do that here, we do that at most cancer centers. Some cancer centers put more money into smoking cessation than others. But our main uh, approach for cancer patients who smoke is to get them to quit. Um, you know, one of the problems with this room is there's no clock. So I don't have any idea how fast I'm going or how I'm doing here. 12.30. Okay. Um, so what, what do we do? Well, we, we, you know, with smoking cessation, often the medical system leaves the counseling to physicians. Um, I think the medical system is getting better about referring. But um, what we've tried to do is get physicians to engage in counseling patients about smoking. And that's been a really difficult undertaking. Because um, a lot of physicians don't like to address it. Um, and even if they do, it's a really difficult process because uh, only 10 to 20% of people are going to take you up on trying to quit. And of those that try, 78% relapse. Right. So the bottom line is that we can be successful at prompting and supporting a successful quit about 5 to 10% of the time. 
Um, in other words, we have to intervene in 10 patients to succeed in one, and we fail nine times out of 10. And I, I think we don't like to fail that often. Um, so that's a disincentive to, um, to this kind of counseling. But I'm here to tell you that we don't do much better in other areas than we do in, in uh, smoking cessation. We just feel better. So with depression, what we know about uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors is that 40% um, that of the time when you treat them, the patient's going to be better in three months. But if you give them placebo, 30% of the time they're going to be better, right? So we're helping one patient in 10, but we feel better, right? Because 40% of them get better, right? And then my favorite is otitis media. That's why I went to pediatrics, because I could feel really good all the time. Because 70% of kids with otitis media get better without treatment, right? You give, the, give them all antibiotics, 80% are going to get better. You help 10%, but all those mothers think that those antibiotics that you gave the kid helped them, right? So you feel great. The parents feel great, right? You're not helping any more than you would if you engaged in smoking cessation counseling, right? But you feel better, right? <clears throat> so the question is, since we can't help that many people quit 5 to 10%, even if we try hard, 20%, is there a role for e-cigarettes in people that continue to smoke? Um, so I'm going to show you that a lot of people with cancer are using e-cigarettes, um, and that they seem to help those that try to quit, at least if they're intensively trying to quit, uh, but that more research is needed. And I'm going to talk about a protocol we're trying to work on here. So um, there's a couple of big cancer programs that plow a lot of money into smoking cessation. Sloan Kettering and MD Anderson. I know MD Anderson spends a million dollars a year uh, delivering cessation to their patients. And um, Sloan Kettering isn't a whole lot different. So um, how do these programs fare? Well, uh, the Sloan Kettering program for 2012 to 13 identified about 4,000 patients that were smokers that had cancer. Uh, these are the ones that didn't want to do anything about it. They either couldn't be contacted or they didn't answer their phones. That's three-quarters of the patients there. You got about 1,000 that were engaged. And um, um, of those 1,000, uh, the majority, a little over half, were lost, either lost to follow-up or, or, or they died. The ones that lost to follow-up, you know that they relapsed, that they started smoking again. So what you ended up with was about 400 patients that were helped by this program, perhaps. But of that 400... They don't tell you um, how many actually quit. It's probably somewhere around maybe 30% was a really strong program. Um, so again, 90% of the people that were treated by this kind of massive effort um, were not able to quit smoking. Um, but a lot of them, they surveyed them uh, periodically, and a lot of this, these 1,000 patients that they followed were trying e-cigarettes, okay? Um, in, in the... In the second quarter of 2013, half of them, a little over half of them, reported using e-cigarettes. So your cancer patients that smoke, there's a big national experiment going on. Your cancer patients that smoke are using e-cigarettes. They might not be telling you about it, but a lot of them are trying e-cigarettes. And from my point of view, if they're trying it, we ought to try to figure out whether it could help them or not. So what do we know about intervention studies? e-cigarettes, not much, and I'll explain why we don't know much um, in a minute when we talk about regulation. Um, the best trial was published in um, Lancet. It was a, a first-generation e-cigarette product, so it wasn't a very good e-cigarette product, 
but they compared the e-cigarette product with and without nicotine to the patch. And they found that uh, all three products at about 200 days worked about the same. There was a little bit of an um, advantage to the, on the blue line to the e-cigarette product with nicotine compared to the e-cigarette product without nicotine. Interesting, the e-cigarette product where they didn't have nicotine, where they were just doing the behavior, that worked as well as the patch, the nicotine patch. So there's something in the nicotine, there's something in the behavior. When you combine the two, you get a little bit more bang for the buck. There's also been some case reports of toxicity, and that's in part because this uh, industry is not regulated. All right. So here, uh, here's a um, case report of an unexpected consequence. It was a woman that completely switched. She, was, she had COPD. She completely switched from smoking, e-cigarette use, and then she got pneumonia. And they biopsied her, and they found that she had lipoid pneumonia. Right. So she was using an e-cigarette product that had oil. And, and you're not supposed to inhale oil into your lungs. You'll, you'll get sick from that, right? So, so this is a prob problem that, you know, we have an unregulated market, and people are putting stuff like essential oils into these e-cigarette liquids, and people are breathing them. That's why we need regulation. So who regulates e-cigarettes? Well, FDA regulates. It's got the job of regulating e-cigarettes. There's two way, ways FDA could regulate them. One is drugs and devices, and that's how nicotine replacement is regulated. So these big drug companies, you know, for patch and gum, they got a new drug application, they did randomized trials, they showed that they helped, and they market them as drugs now. There's another branch of the FDA called the Center for Tobacco Products, uh, and they regulate, they've been mandated by Congress since 2009 to regulate uh, cigarettes, oral tobacco, and loose tobacco. And then there's some cigarette products that Congress did not um, give the FDA the authority to regulate, and e-cigarettes is one of those. Um, but I'm, you know, it's not like the FDA didn't try to regulate them. Um, in 2007, Enjoy began importing electronic cigarettes, and in 2009, FDA blocked shipments of Enjoy. Right? They said, "Look, you know, this is a device that delivers nicotine." You've got, uh, we're going to regulate this device as a drug. You've got to get a new drug application. You've got to test uh, whether this drug is effective. That's how I think everybody in public health wishes e-cigarettes would have been regulated. But Enjoy sued uh, the FDA, and they won in the Court of Appeals. Uh, and basically what they said was, you know, this is not, we're not marketing this as a therapeutic device. We're marketing this as a tobacco product. We're competing with other tobacco products. It's for the enjoyment and the pleasure of tobacco users. <clears throat> the Court of Appeals uh, ruled in favor of Enjoy. The FDA decided not to pursue that on up the channel. So that leaves the FDA uh, to uh, uh, regulate uh, e-cigarettes as tobacco products. Um, and uh, so they've, they're trying to deem e-cigarettes so that they can get authority over them, but they don't have authority over them yet. And that's why e-cigarettes are currently unregulated. Um, the, the FDA has gone a little bit further. They've said, and, and this is that research wrinkle, okay? So what the FDA has said that anybody who wants to test these devices for a therapeutic purpose, like to help people quit smoking, <coughs> have to complete a new drug application. They have to uh, show that the device is safe and effective. They have to document how the uh, uh, the device is manufactured and what the quality control is. Um, and they have to propose labeling. 
Um, so the problem with this is it li limits e-cigarette uh, research in the U.S. mostly to laboratory studies because uh, nobody like me has the money to and the and the personnel to do a new drug application on an e-cigarette. And these cigarette companies aren't interested in this at all. They just want to they just want to get on the market and make money as tobacco product. But um, e-cigarettes can also be studied as a tobacco product. The Center for Tobacco Products is really interested in that. In fact, they're plowing about $6 billion a year into tobacco regulatory research, the study of different tobacco products. Um, and uh, what they want to know about how tobacco products compare is in terms of their appeal, their toxicity, and their impact on health. So we think that studies that compare e-cigarettes with cigarettes can be conducted without a new drug application. So you study the e-cigarette as a tobacco product, you compare uh, the e-cigarette with the cigarette. So um, uh, Mary Burnett, Sarah Pratt, um, they're two psychiatric researchers and I, um, have started uh, some uh, studies that we call e-cigarette substitution research. So the, it asks the question, does switching to e-cigarettes reduce harm? Um, and uh, the way we study appeal is uh, the degree to which a cigarette smoker can substitute an e-cigarette uh, for the cigarette product, how satisfied they are with the e-cigarette product, and the de degree to which they continue to purchase the product after the trial's over. We study toxicity by looking at exhaled carbon monoxide. You don't get carbon monoxide from an e-cigarette, you get it from a cigarette. Uh, and then meteors of disease for cancer would be smoking-related carcinogens, tumor promoters. And then um, we think that we can study short-term medical outcomes if we select the right groups of patients. There are patients that have a high risk of, of uh, adverse outcomes in the six-month to 12-month time frame. If those patients are smokers with smoking-related diseases, we think that's a really great paradigm to study these uh, with short-term trials. So um, doctors uh, Burnett and Pratt, uh, they're very interested in smokers with severe mental illness. Those smokers have um, uh, high levels of addiction. It's really hard to get them to quit. High levels of smoking in that population, about 80% of them smoke. And what they did was uh, they were conducting a trial with Steve Bartels um, that was trying to get these folks to quit. And uh, again, you know, 90% of them were failing to quit, and they took a they took 19 of those, of those failures, and they said, well, let's give them an e-cigarette and see what happens. They gave them an e-cigarette for four weeks, and they asked the question, well, um, you know, how much does it reduce their, their, their weekly cigarette consumption? So weekly cigarette consumption mean was about 200, reduced it to uh, uh, about 60 after four weeks. They liked, uh, they enjoyed the e-cigarettes. They had high satisfaction ratings on each of the weeks. And they said they were willing to buy the product after the end of the trial. Um, and, uh, and it wasn't just self-reported uh, numbers of cigarettes that went down. Their exhaled carbon monoxide levels went down significantly from about 27 to 15, just about half um, carbon monoxide. This is just a four-week trial. So we were kind of excited about that, and we decided to propose um, a trial in cancer patients. And uh, so the first thing I did was I talked to Constantine about it. And, um, and uh, Constantine was really excited about the idea on cancer patients, a lot of them smoke. And um, uh, he was frustrated about the, the idea that it was really hard to um, do anything about these patients, the ones that continue to smoke. 
So we pulled together a, a group of people that were interested in this, and uh, I have so I now have my first cancer center protocol that's making its way through the system, and uh, and uh, so it's a single arm study. We plan to enroll 40 uh, smokers with cancer. Um, we're choosing uh, cancer related, uh, smoking related cancer stage. Uh, one to four lung, head, neck, and bladder cancer. Um, and they'll be identified at the clinical point of care. We're going to give them access to e-cigarettes over a nine-week period. We're going to um, tell them about the theoretical benefits of e-cigarettes. Uh, and we're going to instruct them on how to use them. And we're going to ask them to substitute the e-cigarettes for their usual cigarettes to the greatest extent possible. So here's what it looks like. They come in baseline. We're going to see them every three weeks because that's the schedule for chemotherapy. So we, we think we can pick them up in the... Um, infusion suite. Um, they'll get surveyed each time. We'll get breath carbon monoxide. We'll get urine for uh, smoking-related carcinogens. Um, and, uh, and we'll see them an additional time after the nine weeks to see if they continue to use the e-cigarettes. So that um, aim one is to evaluate the behavioral and psychological appeal. The hypothesis is that they'll, on average, reduce their combustible use by 50%. Um, but that they'll also uh, use them at each of the visits uh, and that they'll have, have high satisfaction ratings. So these, these, these uh, hypotheses come from the uh, severe mental illness patient study. Um, and then we'll also look at uh, toxicity, um, mean expired breath carbon monoxide, uh, urine NNAL, that's uh, a, a, a nicotine-related carcinogen, um, and uh, IHOP, one hop. Um, uh, these are inclusion criteria. We've got exclusion criteria. We don't want uh, to bring people in that are going get, to get surgery or uh, head and neck patients that are being treated with radiation. Um, people that are actively trying to quit smoking or want to quit smoking will be referred to cessation counseling. Um, and we don't want anybody in, in, that have uh, used e-cigarettes in the past 30 days. Um, so the other thing that I'm here to tell you um, is the cancer center is really supports clinical trials. It's amazing. So I've been doing population research for a number of years now, and, and uh, it feels like we almost have to do everything ourselves. Well, I've got uh, Nancy Rawlings uh, activate the Office of Clinical Research. She said, we can do this study for you. Um, and um, thanks to all these people in the Office of Clinical Research who helped me put together the protocol that's going to be, um, it's going to go up in front of the CCRB on Thursday. Uh, they're helping me with the IRB application. Uh, we've got Katie Rice who's going to um, enroll the patients uh, and uh, follow them. Uh, Farm Tox is uh, clinical pharmacology is going to assay the urine. Thanks to Darcy Bates who's uh, working on those assays right now. We've got the shared resource uh, for biostatistics. Emily Shearer is going to do the um, analysis. And we've got the bioinformatics group. Uh, uh, working on data entry and follow-up. So, so this is really, you know, it's really exciting to be, be nested in the cancer center doing this trial because uh, it, it's, it really feels, I uh, really feel supported here. Um, so where are we going to go? Well, the protocol will be reviewed by CC, uh, CCRB on Thursday. It'll go to the Dartmouth IRB. We're going to present it to the respective COGS over the next couple of weeks. Uh, questionnaires are finished. They're being programmed by bioinformatics. Um, Clinfarm, I think, will finish the assays in a month. 
uh, and we're hoping to be in the field by uh, November. Um, it's really important for us to get into the field with these studies fast because other people are going to think of this. And what we want to be able to do is, is uh, beat the other teams to the to the punch, get the uh, data on whether people can will successfully or will try using e-cigarettes so that we can uh, propose randomized clinical trials. So the other thing uh, Constantine has set up is uh, we're going to uh, present uh, this to the prevention group at the fall meeting in Chicago for the Alliance. Um, and they're very enthusiastic about uh, seeing a randomized multicenter trial of e-cigarettes. Um, they're tired of doing cessation. And um, the ultimate aim would be to design a randomized controlled trial to study e-cigarette substitution and how it affects outcomes, including survival. And I think the, um, rolling it out in cancer patients just makes a whole lot of sense. So in summary, e-cigarettes, it's a rapidly growing industry. It's here to stay. It's currently not regulated. Soon will be, because I think the FDA, Center for Tobacco Products, will get um, authority. Um, they're likely to be much less harmful to the health. I wouldn't say they're 95% less harmful. We don't really know how much less harmful they are. They still contain particles. They still contain stuff that could affect your lungs, certainly the stuff that could affect your risk for coronary artery disease. Um, E-cigarette substitution for combustible tobacco though, could offer harm reduction alternative for the 90% of smokers each year that don't want to quit or can't quit. Um, so I think e-cigarettes could be a game changer for certain patient groups. Um, we're going to start working on uh, smokers with cancer. I think another group that would be really interesting is smoker with, smokers with lung nodules. NCI just started an aspirin um, randomized trial uh, for people that uh, had identified lung nodules. So if you could test aspirin as something that might modify growth, it would make sense to look at the smokers with lung nodules and try to get them to use e-cigarettes, see if it could modify growth of uh, lung nodules. And then there's, you know, smoking is, uh, it's like syphilis was at the turn of the last century. It's like, it affects everything. Um, it affects diabetes, COPD, coronary artery disease, peripheral vascular disease, and um, any surgical candidate that smokes. So these are all patient populations that I think we should be ramping up these kind of initial single-arm trials so that we could put together multi-center studies that would really test whether e-cigarettes make a difference for some of these disease outcomes. So in summary, uh, I want to also say something about the tobacco endgame. These pose a threat to the public health if they undermine quitting in the general population through dual use and recruit uh, intermediate risk adolescents to smoking, adolescents that wouldn't otherwise be recruited. So um, I'm gonna end with a picture. Mark said, where, where have you been? I said, well, I've been in the Netherlands riding in, in the, their national park and the holly is, uh, uh, is uh, blooming right now and that's why my wife and I went there. And uh, so that's where I was the last couple of weeks. Uh, do we have time for questions, Mark? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, good. Yeah. You had mentioned that there had to be an IND filing for the study of e-cigarette. Is that, are you doing that? I mean, that makes sense. You have to regulate the public, but are you doing that for your study? No, so I'm studying it's a tobacco process. So I'm studying how e-cigarettes compare to cigarettes. So I'm starting with smokers of cigarettes. And I'm studying how e-cigarettes compare with cigarettes in terms of their appeal. You know, whether people can substitute their toxicity. So at what point does it become an IND? Uh, if you're studying it as a tobacco product, I don't think it does. I think it becomes an IND 
if you want to study it for a therapeutic purpose. So if I said, I want to study e-cigarettes um, as a smoking cessation device to help people quit smoking, then I'd have to get an ID. It's, 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 a, it's a subtle difference, because what's interesting is both sides of the FDA are interested in medical outcomes, right? The Center for Tobacco Products is very interested in whether e-cigarette substitution would change medical outcomes compared to cigarettes. What the Center for Tobacco Products is not that interested in is how e-cigarettes might help people quit smoking, right? Because, because quitting is kind of this other arm of the FDA, the therapeutic, you know, the therapeutic arm, the one that um, uh, uh, looks at the medicines, the Marinoclin, and the other things that we do to help people quit. So it's a bit of an artificial distinction, but um, I'm hoping that we can use it to get um, good information on whether these products affect toxicity and outcomes. Yeah. Do you know if smokers with cancer change their smoking habits during chemotherapy? Um, Constantine, what do you think? Well, the diagnosis of cancer is probably the strongest motivating factor for people to keep in their families. But there are still patients with cancer who continue to smoke and undergo. And for the ones that continue to smoke, you ever see them quit during chemotherapy? I think that the head and neck cancer patients get really miserable when, during their radiation therapy, right? So I think some of them might quit. They quit when they get so sick, right? When they begin to feel better, then, then they start again. So the reason we didn't want to uh, do head and neck cancer patients that are getting um, radiation therapies, they get really, really sick. Yeah? How does the cost compare for the smoker? There, um, it depends on um, where you buy them, but they're, they're, they're generally a bit cheaper. Um, if you buy so basically the, the, the big tobacco companies have priced them to be about equivalent to cigarettes. So if you buy blue cigarettes or Views or the Philip Morris product is going to cost you about the same as cigarettes. But most of the other companies, the smaller companies, are pricing them under cigarettes to try to try to try to use that as an entry into the market. But they're not taxed the way cigarettes are. They're not regulated, yeah. right? So they're not regulated. They're not taxed. There's nothing. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, interest in. Uh, the, the uh, findings that uh, individuals in the Mediterranean region who follow the so-called Mediterranean diet have uh, reduced risk of various diseases, including malignancy. And I just wondered if there's uh, some interest in nutritional or dietary uh, issues that, that may impact uh, these kinds of studies. Um, well, there's interest. There's, we don't have anybody's um, uh, active study. I mean, nutrition in kids, we're studying, you know, um, what, what kinds of, um, uh, how the, how advertising and exposure to advertising, things like that, uh, help, you know, kids develop habits that are not, not so good that lead to obesity. But we don't, that I know of, have anybody that's studying um, nutritional approaches to Miss Allen, and one more question. We have about two minutes. Jim, your new protocol, have, 
Are you going to give, I might have missed this, are you going to give them choice of different types of e-cigs to maximize appeal and see if they can, because they pick their product over a long well, period well, of time, their cigarette. But I think we're going to, you know, I was just at a conference, so the Netherlands, I was at a conference with some e-cigarette um, people that have done a lot of experimental research on the e-cigarettes, and my current favorite approach, I think, after talking to them, is to start with a, they, they said, they pretty much all said, use tank because they work better. But I'm not ready to go there on the tank thing. I mean, I don't really understand the tanks. I don't know anything about the solutions or anything. So I'm going to start with a Sigalite that's kind of a medium nicotine concentration, 24, 24 milligrams per mil. And then that will have a, a, a 18 milligram uh, thing that they can go to if they want to, if the 24 is too high. Then I got a 58 that they can go to if it's too low. Okay, so the VUs is a 58. Um, so they can go to that if it's too low. But we'll start them at 24. And then um, we're going to give them four flavors. So I was asking about the flavors. What flavors do people like? So I thought, you know, people are switching from tobacco to e cigarettes. They're all going to want the tobacco flavor. No. The most popular flavor is fruit flavors. <laughs> so we're going to give them four flavors to choose from of uh, uh, tobacco and four fruit flavors. And what I asked the, the company I'm working with, the Halo company, I asked them, just tell me what your four most popular flavors are and start with those. Um, what point in care are you going to be recruiting people? Is it like their first appointment maybe with a new diagnosis of cancer or is it a follow-up when they've maybe been disease-free and they're doing surveillance now and coming back to the clinic for their, their CT scans and seeing the doctor? I think, all of that. I think we're interested in any point in care. So uh, we're going to have the, um, so the, the great thing about the clinical trials units, they got nurses in all the different uh, areas. And I think we'll get a lot of, um, uh, a lot of referrals from those nurses. That's true. But there's no reason that we should just start a uh, new diagnosis. Is there? No, it's, I mean, it's a pilot trial, so that's why we opened it to all stages. Yeah. Okay, Jim, thanks so much. Okay.